Welcome back, everybody, to Prescribing Truth Podcast. I'm Jamal Benny. If this is your first time watching the show, please subscribe to the channel if you find this content helpful. Uh, leave a rating and review. If you happen to be listening to this on various podcast apps, reviews really help us out a lot. helps me out a lot. Um, if you'd like to contact me, you can do so by emailing me at prescribed.truth at gmail.com or calling me at 801-980-6333. Um, if you'd like to support the show financially, you can do so by partnering me on Patreon. Uh, the link is in the description as well as scrolling across the bottom there. For only a dollar, um, you can take part in the pre-show, the post-show, um, submit topics, and you'll be you know have more precedence and all that kind of good stuff like that. And I have like giveaways I do for patrons, you know, um, monthly gospel tracks and stuff like that. And there's a care package. Just check out the link and you can look at more stuff like that. If that doesn't interest you, that's okay. I appreciate your prayers. Please continue to pray for me as I continue this work. Um, I'm late start today. About 17 minutes after 9, and I'm just now getting live. I had some technical difficulties here. Um, someone went over my computer. I had to restart it and check everything, my levels and everything else. So um, a rough start on this evening, but nevertheless, we are here, and I'm thankful for that. I'm hoping everybody's week has been going good so far, and um, and we look forward to the rest of the weekend. Let's, let's, uh, let's get to it. So I don't want to prolong any more of the time, I don't want to get into a lot of backstory here. Um, today, we're going to be reviewing the works of MLK. Just like it says in the title, reviewing the works of MLK Jr. This is going to take some time tonight. I'm not trying to rush through. So that's why I kind of want to get past all this extra stuff and get into it, all right? The first thing we're going to look at, we're going to look at a paper from when he was in college. Um, the date of it is around um, 1949 to 1950. We're going to look at that. Um, we're going to look at as far as, uh, his belief in the deity of Christ and so on and so forth. We're going to look into that and then we're going to jump into some, um, we're going to review some sermons of his, um, and no, we'll, we'll go from there. You know, I have the chat thing open. So anybody who happens to be watching live right now, you can chat and we can um, discuss chats in between as we're looking at stuff and questions you may have or uh, comments you may have during this time. And we'll get into that. Um, now. As I said before, I wanted to be very careful about this subject. I want to be um, very mindful and compassionate for those who may find this very offensive and whatnot. Um, my um, my goal in this is not to be um, a jerk. I want to be, um, I, I just want to stick with the truth. I want to stick with the truth. It's not about having respect to persons. It's not about um, who a person may be or how I like this person to be. You know, I just want to stick to what the truth is. And so... This whole thing started off with a comment uh, from a guy, a uh, disciple, uh, who commented on my channel asking about, you know, why we reject Martin Luther King as far as being a Christian, yet except Luther and, and Whitsfield and, and so on and so forth. So I said in the next few weeks, in the coming weeks, we're going to discuss all these people. So today is Martin Luther King's day. You know, um, we're, we're, no, <laughs> that's like a pun. But um, it's his day. We're going to look at um, some stuff of his. Next week, we'll look at some Luther. And from then on, we'll look at Whitfield and so on and so forth, all right? You send me links. Send me things you want me to see on these people. You think it's interesting. You want to try to bring it out on the show. I greatly appreciate it. This helps out a lot. So uh, you can take part in this discussion. So that's that, all right? So without any further ado, let's look at the first um, item we're going to take a look at. Now, like I said, that's, that's a website. Matter of fact, while I'm on live, I will put a link to the website that I'm reviewing in the description. So now in this website, there is a lot of his works, a lot of it. So you can take the time on your own time to look at uh, what I don't cover tonight for your own research and whatnot. And that'd be cool. 
So I'm going to go and put it in the description now. It should save in a few seconds after I post it in there. Just give it a moment. And that's that. The King's King's Institute. King Institute at um, Stanford.edu. That's where I'm getting this stuff from. So that's what's up. Alright, what's going on, Ivan? What's up, brother? Alright. So the first thing we look at is a paper um, that he did while he was in school, an essay. And this is on the humanity and divinity of Jesus. Alright. So this is how he this is based on a paper that he did, uh, how his feeling is feeling was towards Jesus or who he was, and so on and so forth. And then we'll look at some sermons. All right, um, let me get to the next screen. My computer's running a little slow. All right. Okay, as you can see here, this is the um, <laughs> this is the paper here. Uh, like I said, and I'm not trying to read this word by word, okay? We're going we're gonna to skim through it. Like I said, I have the website down there. You can check it out yourself if you want to read more into it, A, B, and C. We're going to look at three works of his, three. That's all I'm doing tonight, three, all right? And I'll do, I'm going to treat the same across the board. Three for him. I need three for Luther, um, at least three for um, Whitfield, and same for, um, what's, I can't remember the other guy's name now, Whitfield and Jonathan Edwards. So it's something dealing with this whole issue of slavery and social justice and all of that around that area. And as far as doctors, now we, I don't think anybody would disagree that Whitfield and Edwards were pretty um, orthodox concerning the faith, you know, um, even reformed maybe, you know, like, so we can get into that. The issue with Martin Luther King is that he was unorthodox, you know, so it wasn't that he was even orthodox. It wasn't that he wasn't reformed. It was that he wasn't even orthodox in his beliefs. So there are beliefs he held to that even orthodox people who are, who are not reformed would call him a heretic. And you no, know, the argument can be made. Well, he, you know, um, he didn't go to the he didn't go to a good enough school. You know, I dis I discount that argument because he had a Bible, and he's going to make it clear that he's done a lot of research. Martin Luther King is not a dummy. He was very he was very intelligent. Um, so there's there's no excuse. You know, there's no excuse for him reading the Bible and coming to the conclusions that he come to. All right, and his reason. And when we look at this, you're going to see his reasoning for not believing in the deity of Christ or even him divergent birth, uh, be that as it may, is that because it goes against science. That is that is the argument he's going to make. All right, so we're going to look at all of that, and um, so yeah, so that's that's that. All right, so this first part here, this little first paragraph, this is just an intro. Um, somebody's narrating this, so we're not going to really worry about that. But this is where he begins his um, essay. All right, so we're going to look at, well, we'll, we'll start here. We'll just start, all right? It said, many years ago, a young Jewish leader asked his followers a question, which was all but astounding. He had been working with them quite assiduously. During their work together, he was constantly asking them what his contemporaries were saying about him. But one day, he pressed the question closer home. It is all very well to say what other people think of me, but what do you think? What do you say that I am? And so, in this, he's talking about Jesus. Uh, he met with his disciples, and he would say, hey, what do men say that I am? Who do they say that I am? And then he asked them, well, who do you say that I am? All right. He goes on to say, he said, this question has gone echoing down the centuries ever since the young Jewish prophet sounded its first note. Many have attempted to answer this question by attributing total divinity to Jesus with little concern for his humanity. Others have attempted to answer this question by saying that Jesus was a mere good man with no divine dimensions. 
Still, others have attempted to get at this question by seeing Jesus as fully human and fully divine. So right here, you see Martin Luther King has looked into the arguments. It ain't that he just went to a bad school, where it may be. He has heard the arguments concerning Jesus. He looked at everything. He's very intelligent. He's taking his time. All right. So that is so. I want to throw out the excuse that he just didn't have a good enough teaching. Like he's done his own research. All right. It says the um. He said this question, which was so prominent in the thinking of the early Christian centuries, was not answered once and for all at the Council of uh, Chalcedon. If I've been pronounced that right. Rather, it lurks forth in modern theological thinking with an amazing degree of freshness. In grappling with the question of the person of Christ, modern Christian thinking is unanimous in setting forth the full humanity of Jesus. Yet Christians have not been willing to stop there. Despite all the human limitations of Jesus, most Christian thinkers have been convinced that God was in Christ. So check this out now. Despite our human limitations of Jesus, most Christian thinkers have been convinced that God was in Christ. All right. God was in Christ. Pay attention to that now. So to be sure, Christian thinkers are often in conflict over the question of how and when Jesus became divine. So check this out now. This is part two, point two. To be sure, Christian thinkers are often in conflict over the question of how and when Jesus became divine. Now, that's fair, because that is a question. That is one of the arguments. That's what, that's matter of fact. That's why the Council of Nicaea came about, not because people trying to make up Christianity and make up Jesus. They was arguing over the divinity of Jesus. All right, so, that's, I mean, that is true. But, all, but as to the presence of the divine dimension within him, we find little disagreement in Christian circles. At this point, we may turn to a detailed discussion of the humanity and divinity of Jesus. So this is his thesis. This is how he brings it in. All right. So then he goes on to talk about the humanity of Jesus. Now, there's no question about the humanity of Jesus, you know, um, how he carried himself, how he walked, so on and so forth. But this is the paragraph I want to look at, the divinity of Jesus. This is the key. This is the thing. All right. So after, now this is what he continues on out here in the divinity of Jesus. After establishing the full humanity of Jesus, we still find an element in his life which transcends the human. To see Jesus as a mere good man, like all other prophets, is by no means sufficient to explain him. Okay, so like pretty good start, right? It's like, oh, good job, Martin. Like he's on point. Moreover, the historical setting in which he grew up, the psychological uh, mood and temper of the age and the house of Israel, the economic and social predicament of Jesus' family, all these are important. But these in themselves fail to, to answer one significant question. Why does he differ from all others in the same setting? Any explanation of Jesus in terms of psychology, economics, religion, and the like must inevitably explain his contemporaries as well. These may tell us why Jesus was a particular kind of Jew, but not why some other Jews were not Jesus. Jesus was brought up in the same conditions as other Jews, inherited the same traits that they inherited, and yet he was. Jesus and the others were not. This uniqueness in the spiritual life of Jesus was led, has led Christians to see him not only as a human being, but as a human being surrounded with divinity. Now, I want you to check the wording of this, okay? Not that he is deity not that he is divine but that he is a human being surrounded with divinity 
It's, come on, if we if you say okay, well, no, Jamal, this is semantics. Don't play, don't play and say this is semantics, y'all. Because if we hear somebody teaching this, if we was to listen to a Joel Osteen say this or T.D. Jake say this, we'll say they are going around the way and denying Jesus of being actual deity. They're denying it. Now he goes on like this ain't it. Like this is not the the the, uh, the tip of the iceberg here. It it continues. He says, prior to all other facts about Jesus stands the spiritual assurance that he is divine. All right, so try check this out. Prior to all other facts about Jesus stands the spiritual assurance that he is divine. So now he says he is divine. Hold your horses. Hold your horses. He says, as Dr. Brown succinctly states in recent books, that God was in Christ is the very heart of the Christian faith. In this divine human person, the ever-recurring um, uh, autonomy, it, uh, I probably pronounced that, wrong, I pronounced that word wrong, of the universe is presented in a living symbol, the antinomy of the eternal in the temporal, of the infinite in the finite, the finite of the divine in the human. As stated above, the conflict that Christians often have over the question of Jesus' divinity is not over the validity of the fact of his divinity, but over the question of how and when he became divine. The more orthodox Christians have seen his divinity as an inherent quality metaphysically bestowed. Jesus, they have told us, is the pre-existent Lagos. He has studied y'all. He has studied the Bible. He's read John 1, 1. He's read it. He's, he said, they have told us, is the pre-existent Lagos. He is the word made flesh. He's read John 1 through verse 14. He is the word made flesh. He is the second person of the Trinity. He understands the doctrine of the Trinity. Now, I will go on to let you know that as I continue to read his, some of his sermons, he doesn't hold to the doctrine of the Trinity. But it's evident because he doesn't believe in the virgin birth, nor that Jesus actually was always the eternal word. So that's that's going without saying. So he doesn't hold to the doctrine of the Trinity, but he is aware of the doctrine. Is that he is the word made flesh. He is the second person of the Trinity. He is very God of very God. He's read the Nicene Creed. So this, these are things that people have said of Jesus. This is not something he hosts to. This is what people have said. So he's read the Nicene Creed. He understands the doctrines and so on and so forth. Of one substance with the Father, who for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Ghost of the Virgin Mary. So he understands. Certainly, this view of the divinity of Christ present, uh, presents many modern minds with insuperable difficulties. Most of us... Most of us are not willing to see the union of the human and the divine in a metaphysical incarnation. Yet, amid all of our difficulty with the pre-existent idea and the view of supernatural generation, we must come to some view of the divinity of Jesus. In order to remain in the orbit, in the orbit of the Christian religion, we must have a Christology. So he understands all this, y'all. Very intelligent man. Brilliant man. Fairly intelligent. As Dr. Bell has reminded us, we cannot have a good theology without a Christology. That is so true, y'all. That is true. That is true. This is why Jehovah's Witnesses are wrong. This is why Mormonism is wrong. 
That's why Islam is wrong. They all talk about Jesus, but they have a false Christology. All do. Where then can we in the liberal tradition find the divine dimension in Jesus? We may find the divinity of Christ not in his substantial unity with God, but in his filial consciousness and in his unique dependence upon God. So this is his conclusion, y'all. Where then can we find can where then can we in the liberal tradition find the divine dimension in Jesus? We may find the divinity of Christ not in his substantial unity with God, but in his filial, and I probably pronounced that word wrong, in his filial consciousness and his unique dependence upon God. So this is takes this takes the view that Jesus was such a human being that he was so God-centered that he became divine. He became divine. Now, somebody uh, <laughs> brought up in my last video how I kind of quoted Creflo Dollar. And it, you know, it was like me comparing Martin Luther King to Creflo Dollar at this point. Well, they make the similar argument. Creflo Dollar said the same thing. I, and I quoted him and, you know, made a little fun of how he talked. But they said it's basically the same thing. Creflo Dollar believes Jesus became divine. He's, that's what he said. He became divine. He wasn't always divine. He became divine. You know, he was a human being. He slept. And he said, God don't sleep. So even Martin Luther King, he's bringing up the fact that, hey, he had human difficulties. You know, saying, you know, God may have been in him. And, you know, in the same way he may dwell in other believers. But, you know, he, he was such a, he was so conscious of God. And he was, you know, he depended upon God more than anyone else. He was just that, just the ultimate leader in that way. That this is why this is why people call him divine, but this doesn't mean he became that he always was divine. Okay, that's what I mean. That's what it says. Oh, that's what he say. And you say, well, what about later on in his life? He could have changed A, B, and C. As we look at some sermons, as we're going to look at briefly tonight, he didn't change his views. Not what we see now. Like I said, in the um, in the seven years it was after the sermon we're going to look at, maybe, but there's no record of it. And that's why I say like in my last video. I'm hesitant to deem Martin Luther King a believer, you know, saying like, you know, he may have changed, you know, cool, but I'm just not going to go off with an argument of silence, you know, given what he wrote and there's nothing in his writings or his sermons that went against what he wrote that, you know, that he said that, hey, I, you know, I rebuttal that, I, you know, I, I recant that, none of that, none of that. He stays on the same trajectory concerning his uh, idea of who Jesus is. And so, um, so yeah. Continue on. Let's continue on. I went on a tangent there. It was his feeling of absolute dependence on God, as I can't pronounce that name. This person would say that made him divine. So it was his feeling of absolute dependence on God that made him divine. Check this out. Now he so he's agreeing with whoever this person is, this uh, shield maker, something like that. He says it was his feeling. His feeling. Not the, not the fact that he always existed as the Lagos, but it was his feeling of absolute dependence on God. Or is this word say failing? Uh, you know, I think it means feeling, just typo there. It was his feeling of absolute dependence on God that made him divine. Made him divine. Made him divine. I'm going to keep saying it over again. Made him divine. Yes. And he agrees. Yes. It was the warmness of his devotion to God and the intimacy of his trust in God that accounts for his being the supreme revelation of God. 
So that's it. I mean, I mean, I'm gonna continue to read some more. I'm just saying this. This is his thoughts, guys. He, he he's already shown that he's done the research. He has researched the Nicene Creed. He's researched the argument of the divinity of Jesus, the the the, the doctrine of the Trinity, and everything else. Yet he comes to this conclusion. So I'm sorry, y'all. The excuse that he didn't go to a, a solid school with all, the, uh, all that stuff? No. No, because he's done research. He's done research at this time. You know, between 1949 and 1951, he's, you know, he wrote this, um, this essay. He says, all of this reveals to us that one man has at last realized his true divine calling. Did you check that? All of this reveals to us that one man has at last realized his true divine calling. One man that has at last realized his true divine calling. You know what that sounds like, right? That sounds to me, now I'm not saying he's going as far as being like a Mormon, but, you know, Mormons teach, you know, that we can one day become God. But he's saying Jesus is one of many men. Like he's one. That one man has at last realized his true divine calling. Okay. That of becoming a true son of man by becoming a true son of God. Check that. Becoming a true son of God. Now he was always the son of God, but becoming a true son of God. It is the achievement of a man who has, as nearly as we can tell, completely opened his life to the influence of the divine spirit. It is, I'm going to read this again, y'all. It is the achievement of a man. Not just the one man, Jesus, but of a man who has, as nearly as we can tell, completely opened his life to the influence of the divine spirit. You can be just as divine as Jesus if you open up your life to the influence of the divine spirit. That's all you can do. If you do that, you will become a true son of God and you'll be a true son of man. That's what Jesus did. Okay. That's what he, this is what he believed. Now, once again. You can go through that whole argument about, you know, what he believed later. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to keep trying to beat that dead horse with you. But this is what he's saying here, all right? And I'm not saying this to be kind of sin. I'm not trying to be arrogant with this. And stuff. I'm reading what he wrote. These are his words. These aren't my words. This ain't, this ain't what some white man told me about Martin Luther King. These are his words, okay? So it ain't that he just had some... Some beliefs that people just, you know, oh man, you know, it, you know, it's okay, you know, he could still be a believer, you know. Well, he, at least he has some good deeds. You and I both know that our good deeds don't save us. So if we have a a raging, if you have somebody who's a heretic, you don't say, well, because they taught, they did some good things in the world that God gave them a pass, because that ain't how God works, and that ain't what the Bible teaches concerning salvation, concerning truth. Is that those that worship God must worship him in spirit and in truth. Martin Luther King has studied what the truth was, and he rejected it. Now, look what he says. The orthodox attempt. See, it's an orthodox attempt, y'all. So he understands orthodoxy. The orthodox attempt to explain the divinity of Jesus in terms of an inherent metaphysical substance within him seems to me quite inadequate. That's what he says. Seems to me quite inadequate, not not right, not correct to say that the Christ whose example of living we are bid to follow is divine in an ontological sense is actually harmful and detrimental. 
Y'all, you would not, if you heard T.D. Jake say this right now, you would, there would be no worry about it. It don't matter how many times he's given to the poor. It don't, mean, it don't matter how many times he stood up against the, uh, the Republican council and all that kind of crap. You would say he's a heretic. Heretic. There will be, no, be no doubt. But because it's Martin Luther King, you show respect respected persons. And I'm not saying it's the disciple per se, the guy who commented, but those, the others who sat on the social justice side who would stand behind him, the ones who had him up as the MLK 50 and, and deeming him to be a Christian, you know, y'all, y'all wouldn't stand for that. Be inconsistent. Good, let me continue. To invest this Christ, to invest this Christ with such supernatural qualities makes the rejoinder, oh well, he had a better chance for that kind of life than we can possess that we could possibly have. In other words, one could easily use this as a means to hide behind his failures. Oh man. So basically he's saying people can use the, the true divinity of Christ to hide behind their own failures. He said, so that the orthodox view of the divinity of Jesus, I mean of Christ, is in my mind quite readily denied. Quite readily, y'all. So that so that the orthodox view of the divinity of, of Christ is in my mind, in his mind, y'all, in my mind, quite readily denied. 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 Readily denied. That's what he said. The true significance of the divinity of Christ lies in the fact that his achievement is prophetic and promissory for every other true son of man who is willing to submit his will to the will and spirit of God. Christ was to be only the prototype of one among many brothers. Uh-huh. Yep. Y'all can start y'all can start unsubscribing now. You don't have to subscribe to the channel. You can unsubscribe now. Because since, since I made that last video, I had people unsubscribe to the channel because I started dealing with Martin Luther King. But this is the truth, guys. This is the truth. And whether you unsubscribe to not and decide not to watch any more of this content, the truth still remains. It's hard for me to say that this man died a believer. He said it's readily denied. Readily denied. And Things like that. Things like that don't change unless the Lord himself changes it. And, you know, it doesn't. And I'm not saying God couldn't have. There's just no evidence of it. There's no evidence of it. All right? I mean, and, and see, and to, be, and to be fair, when we examine George Whitfield and Martin Luther and Jonathan Edwards, guess what? The same argument can be made. All right? You may have heard George Whitfield write and condone slavery in Georgia or push for slavery in Georgia, but what if he repented later? In his life. What about Jonathan Edwards? He may have been forced slavery, but what if he repented later in his life? There's no writing of it. Right? We know they had solid doctrine, but they had, but y'all say he they had wrong practice. So what if they repented later? What if they recanted all that, hated all that, all that stuff? We can argue from silence, and you'll say that we're wrong for arguing for silence. We have to treat Martin the King with the same standards. The same standards. Being fair. Being fair. And so that's that. Now, this is all I'm going to spend on this. You are welcome to read more of what he said on that. Um, that is all I'm going to give that time for. This is what he said. This is, matter of fact, um, 
That matter of fact, that was towards that was the end. That was towards the end. One more paragraph, and that would have been the end um, of that of that essay. So we read it. We read basically his whole essay. Now that was in. Um, look at the timestamp. That was 1949, but they they date this around uh, 1949 to 1950. All right, cool. All right, so let's look at this next one real quick. So looking at looking at the comments right now, uh, so I got Ivan saying it's heartbreaking. There are so uh, so many people who put King on a pedestal. Yeah, man, and that's true. Um, Angel Heaven says very sad. Yeah, it's very you know, it, and that's, you know, it's just things like this, like you don't you don't talk about, and it, it comes out, you know. And see, I, and I have to say, I'm thankful for this whole issue with social justice and the gospel and all that, because if it wasn't for these things, we probably wouldn't be looking to all this. I probably wouldn't have still known about any of this had I had these situations not come up. So I still I praise God for the fact that these things have a have arisen or arisen that that we deal with them and uh, talk about them and actually push some of us to do more research. You know, I mean, that's some good that's some good to come out of it. The problem in that is, though, they are pushing us to do more research it's not working in their favor, because the more we find, the more we see that it was that this is this stance of social justice is, is insensible. You know, like we should be standing for it as a Christian. Now, I remember in my last video last week, I talked about how it was interesting as as when I heard about Martin Luther King getting stabbed and um and his reason for being stabbed. It, it just opened my eyes to some stuff. You know, the, the, the woman now, to be fair, the woman that stabbed him, she was put into a, a, a psych ward, you know, deemed to have had some mental problems. So she could have been making everything up. She could have been fabricating the fact that he had dealings with communists and all that stuff like that, as far as the reason why she stabbed him. You know, so all that could be wrong. You know, that's what they said about her. She was crazy, you know. And I wouldn't think the police would lie about that because at that time, the police were too much not wanting to um, side with Martin Luther King like that. You know, some of them probably would, but during the time, nah, I mean, I don't think it would have lied about that. So, given that, I'm going to let that stand. But this article, or this uh, sermon, this is a sermon he gave, um, very interesting. This is September 30th, 1962, in Atlanta. He gave this sermon. So, this is a few years after um, he wrote the essay, or maybe a couple years after he wrote the essay. And the title is Telling. Can a Christian be a communist? Now, I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go on because I don't want to read this whole sermon. It's it's pretty lengthy, but we're gonna look at some key points within it. Now, he's going on to say that a Christian cannot be a communist, and as I read, I'm like, okay, because I was worried about it for him. I was like, okay, come on, the King. I was kind of worried that he may be, you know, pushing communism a little bit because that's what this social justice stuff is. It's communism, and they say, no, it ain't. No, it ain't. A, B, and C. We don't believe in Karl. No, we ain't following Karl Marx and all that stuff like that. Okay. All right. But so he he says, no, um, Christians cannot be a communist. But the reasons why he says a Christian can't be a communist has nothing to do with the ends. It has everything to do with the means. So what that means is the reason why communists, communists do what they do, the methods by which they do what they do to get what they want is what we don't agree with as Christians. But the ends... Is what Christians should push for. So it's like he does believe in the end for communism, but he doesn't like he doesn't agree with the way communists have wanted to get the ends. I hope that makes sense. I hope I made some sense of that. So that's what he's going to talk about here in his sermon. What I love about the um the recording of this sermon or the, the typing of it 
is that um, whoever typed this, um, they actually included the the uh, audience reactions. So he'll say certain stuff and say, "Well, <laughs> Amen, <laughs> preach, Pastor, or not preach, Pastor, but preach on and stuff like that." I thought that was kind of cool. I, I can it kind of put me there. I can just I can see I'm back in 1962 listening to him preach this sermon and hearing how he talk and all that kind of stuff like that and hearing the people in the background. It's kind of cool. So um, let's let's look at this here. Uh, so first, he, he talks about in the beginning, um, he wants to describe communism, what it is, um, how it's grown in influence, and so on and so forth. And he asks the question, can a Christian be a communist? I mean, can a Christian be a communist? Um, then he goes on to see. All right, so here, this is the key part right here. Just go ahead and put this out there. He said, now, after he, just, after he explains all that, he says, now let us begin by answering the question which our sermon topic raises, can a Christian be a communist? I answer that question with an emphatic no. These two philosophies are um, diametrically opposed. The basic philosophy of Christianity is unalterably opposed to the basic philosophy of communism. And all of the dialect, uh, dialectics of the log, um, logician uh, cannot make them lie down together. They are contrary philosophies. Amen. Amen. Like, that's true. And when I read that paragraph, I'm like, oh, man, let me go ahead and hang this up. Martin Luther King is not a communist. Like, good, good gracious. Thank you. I was, I was, just, I was about ready to jump for joy. I was like, man, you know what? That's what I'm talking about. Martin Luther King, he, he made, you know, he you know, had me worried for a little bit. But, no, he ain't a, he ain't a communist. He ain't, he ain't pushing for equal distribution of wealth and all that stuff like that. He ain't doing that, man. You know what I'm saying? He just wants, he just wants this, these equal rights and stuff like that and, and people to be treated right, you know, blacks to be treated right and all that stuff like that. That's all he wanted, you know. But then, you know, like anything else, we continue to read and we continue to find and we continue to see and we just let it, you know, let the truth be what it is. So, he now he asks this, after he says this, he says, how then is communism irreconcilable with Christianity? In the first place, it leaves out God and Jesus Christ. Now, I'm always, I'm, now, I'm always cautious of somebody who separates God and Jesus. As we saw earlier, how he believes Jesus is divine, it shows that he doesn't believe in the Trinity. So, he believes Jesus is not God. Obviously, Jesus isn't God. Okay. Now, Jesus said, unless you believe that I am, you have no part in me. That's what Jesus said. He says here, they leave out God and Jesus Christ. He believes Jesus is uh, a man. We already read it already. I ain't finna beat that dead horse. You know, y'all seen it. All right. So he leaves, so leaves out God and Jesus Christ. Communism is avowedly secularistic and materialistic. The great philosopher of communism, Karl Marx, based his total philosophy on what he called dialectal uh, materialism. There was a philosopher by the name of... Um, Hegel, who had used what he called the dialectical system to analyze concepts, and Karl Marx was willing to take Hegel's dialectic. And then he studied another man by the name of Feuerbach, a German philosopher. I probably pronounced that name wrong. This man was a materialist. And so he took the materialism of this man and added it to the dialectic that he got from Hegel. And this is why his system is called dialectical materialism. So he goes on explaining materialism and what it is. And so then he goes on in this next paragraph so that no Christian can be a communist because communism leaves out God. It regards religion psychologically as, as wishful thinking, which it does. Regards religion intellectually 
as the product of fear and ignorance, which it does, and it regards religion historically as an instrument serving the ends of exploiters. Mm-hmm. That's that's what they believe. That's what communism believe. You know what I'm saying? Like this is this is what it is. So, you know, he's not wrong in saying this. This is why the two don't agree. You know, that's why you can't be a communist and be a Christian. Period. Yeah, you know, but uh, he gonna he's gonna anyway. I'm, I'm gonna let him speak for himself. This is what communism teaches about religion. And so, in a real sense, we disagree with this because we believe that history is moved not by economic forces, but by spiritual forces in the con- congregation. Amen. Yeah. <laughs> we believe that there is a God. Pray on <laughs> in this universe. Yes, sir. Yes. <laughs> oh, man. I, I, I enjoy this, man. Like, this is cool. I like this, man. You can, just, you, can you picture yourself being there? <laughs> Yes, sir. Yeah. A God who loves his children and a God who works through history for the salvation of man. Hold on. Plug my laptop. Let me plug it back in. All right. There we go. All right. He loves his children and a God who works through history for the salvation of man. Pray on. Consequently, we can't accept communism at that point. All right. Let's look at this again now. This is why Christians cannot be communist all right communism teaches about religion and so in a real sense we disagree with this because we believe that history is not is moved not by economic forces but by spiritual forces so that's one we believe that there is a god in this universe there's two a god who loves his children and a god who works through history for the salvation of man consequently we can't accept communism at that point a second reason that we can't accept communism is that its methods are opposed to christianity so now it's the premise of communism that he disagrees with and now the method. All right, so the methods are post-Christianity. Pray on. Since for the communists, there is no divine government or no absolute moral order, there are no fixed immutable principles. So force, violence, murder, and lying are all justifiable means to bring out the millennial end. Lenin, the man who was, who had, who was something of the technician of communism, putting the philosophy of Karl Marx into practice action, said on one occasion we must be ready to employ trickery deceit and law-breaking withholding and concealing truth that the followers of lenin have been willing to act upon these instructions is a matter of history for communism the end justifies the means all right so this is why he disagrees that this this all this these methods these horrible methods and all that stuff like that these are go against Christian teaching, Christian doctrine, orthodoxy. You know, this is not how God wants us to behave. God is against lying. Therefore, we shouldn't be trying to lie. We shouldn't be trying to be deceitful. God is against murder, all that kind of stuff. So, therefore, we can't use those methods, you know. So, this is why we don't believe in communism. All right? Now, he continues. There again, we can't go along with this. We believe that there are certain moral principles in this universe that are eternal and absolute. We believe that there are some things right and there are some things wrong. It's wrong to lie. It has always been wrong and it always will be wrong. It's wrong to hate. Yes, sir. It always has been wrong and will always be wrong. It is wrong to throw away the precious lives that God has given us in riotous living. It was wrong in 1800 B.C. 
and it's wrong in 1962 AD. It's wrong in Russia. It's wrong in China. It's wrong in India. It's wrong in New York. And it's wrong in Atlanta. Yeah. We believe that there are some things right eternally and absolutely so. And there are some things wrong. Then we don't believe that the end justifies the means. If those means happen to be bad. For we know that the end represents the means in process and the ideal in the making. The end is pre-existent in the means. And so destructive means cannot bring about constructive ends. Immoral methods cannot achieve moral goals. And so we disagree with the ethical relativism and of communism. Amen. Somebody. Hallelujah. I agree with everything he said there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He's right. He's right. So, no, the ends do not justify the means. You know what I'm saying? So, no, if you got to do it by trickery and all that stuff like that, don't do it. But this is what he deems as being communism. Not just the ends, but the means as well. The means, how the methods and all of that is included in communism. So, if you can get to the ends without using the means that they use, then it's pretty good. And you're going to see. That he actually is okay with the ends, as long as it's done a right way without trickery, without lying, and you know all that kind of other crap. So, communism, and if you think about communism, communism defined, I mean defined, has nothing to do with the means. Nothing to do with the means. Communism is dealing with the ends. That's what it's about. Just like capitalism, capitalism has has nothing to do. With the, the means, it's the end. You know, what is the end result? This is what we want for the economy. So this, you know, now how you get there may be unethical and some of it may be ethical. But this is how it should look. Capitalism, this is how it should look. Same thing with communism. All right, so let's, let's continue. All right, hope y'all follow me here. It says, in the third place, we have to disagree with communism because of the end of communism is the state. I should qualify this by saying that the state and communist uh, theory is a temporary reality, an interim reality, which is to be eliminated when the, class, when the classless society emerges. All right, so let's read that again. In the third place, we have to disagree with communism because the end of communism is the state. Now, that's true. When it, what it boils down to is that the state controls everything. That's what it boils down to. And you don't want that. As Christians, we don't want that. You know, that's not how it's supposed to be. You know, and so you don't want to you don't want the state to control everything because, you know, you ain't going to be able to say what you want to say. You know, one of, one of the freedoms we have is freedom of speech. You know, you can't go in Russia. He's going to mention this in his sermon, so I'm not going to read all of that. But, you know, you can't go to Russia and just say what you want to say about the government. You can't. You know, here in America, you kind of get away with some stuff. That's why people can get away with saying how bad Trump is because we actually have this democracy. You can say what you want to say. You know, saying as long as you don't threaten to kill and something like that, you know, that's terrorist terroristic threat. But you can you can pretty much say how much you don't like Trump and don't like the government and can't stand how they do things. You're free to do that in the society that we have now. But in communism, you know, the state rules. And if the state says you shouldn't do that or you can't do that because it's going to it's not going to benefit society as they see fit, then, you know, they will take it away from you. So that's true. You know, so I'm not going to read that whole paragraph. Cause I kind of went into that a little bit already. So I'm going to read this next one. He says, we know that the most creative moments in history are those moments when individuals are left free to think. So communism, communism takes that away when it, if, it, um, if the ends is a state, you know, the state rules. 
And so for, and I'm going, skipping that paragraph. And so for these three reasons, I am convinced that no Christian can be a communist. These two systems are opposed to each other. These two systems are contradictory. We must try to understand communism. We must love communists, but we never can, but never can we accept communism and be true Christians. All right. Amen. Right there, we're like, okay, he's not a communist. That's what's up. But then he goes on. He says, yet we must realize that there is something in communism which challenges us all. It was the late Archbishop of Canterbury, William Temple, that referred to communism as a Christian heresy. I want you to follow me as I go through this other aspect of the message. By this, he meant that communism had laid hold on certain truths which are essential parts of the Christian view of things, but that it had bound that it had bound up with them concepts and practices which no Christian can ever accept or profess. And read that again. So he says, he said this by he meant that communism had laid down, laid hold on certain truths which are essential parts of the Christian view of things. All right. So this goes into the idea of think about the woke church now, woke theology, and all that kind of stuff like that, woke people. They say, well, these things, this whole social justice issue and everything else, this is essential. This is how we this is how Christians should view the world. This is how we should view how things should be. So communism has some things that it has right that we should be trying to hold to. It's just that we can't, the way they get to it, we can't profess as Christians. Like we can't agree with that, the way they get to it. We can't. But they saying these are truths that are essential to the Christian view of things. All right? Now, people got mad when John MacArthur said that, I'm kind of going on a tangent real quick. Get ready. John MacArthur said that um, people are preaching a social gospel. But you know, Martin Luther King actually refers to his teaching on this as the social gospel. He calls it a social gospel in a good way. You know, he said this is actually a good thing. He calls it a social gospel. So you shouldn't really be offended when Martin, uh, MacArthur said that y'all are preaching a social gospel. Martin Luther King agrees. Y'all are preaching a social gospel. You know, and he says it's a good thing. I just want to throw that little tidbit out there. Now, he refers to this social gospel. He refers to this um, as social, as social um, justice and so, so, and so on and so forth. So, I mean, he, he, this is what he's talking about, you know. So when, um, and as he talk about the, as he gets into his whole discussion, as he's preaching to this church, um, I want you to know in the beginning of his sermon, he lets people know, hey, you know, this may sound political to some of you guys, but I think this is important. We need to discuss this, you know. So he let people know this sermon is not going to be like one of them uplifting service that sermons that just uplift Jesus at the top. Is hey, I'm trying to give y'all some information, um, let you know how Christians are supposed to respond to this stuff, and you know how we, what we should think about it, and, and so on and so forth. So he, you know, he does make that in the beginning. Um, and so anyway, so these truths, which are essential parts of the Christian view of things, but that it had had bound up with them concepts and practices which no Christian can ever accept or profess. In other words, although communism can never be accepted by a Christian, it emphasizes many essential truths that must forever challenge us as Christians. Indeed, it may be that communism is a necessary corrective for a Christianity that has been all too passive and a democracy that has been all too inert. This sounds familiar. Sounds like something that um I heard Eric Mason say concerning um you know passivity in Christian you know in uh, Christian churches and so on and so forth concerning social injustices. The interesting thing is back in this time when Martin Luther King is writing this or preaching this sermon, you are dealing with some you know dealing with segregation and all that stuff like that. I mean, all that stuff was going on in his time. And so you have some true social injustices dealing with blacks. Uh, today, 
you know, I I don't know. I don't see how y'all get the same the same thing as as today from here. I think Martin Luther King, he'll be very he'll be very pleased as far as to see where blacks have come since then as we are now. You know? Or maybe he won't. You know, there's somewhere in here where he says anytime he does say this in his sermon. And I'm I'm paraphrasing him, but he said there's somewhere if there's somewhere in the world or in the country that there's somebody making five hundred thousand dollars a year, then you got somebody over here making five hundred dollars a year. Then it's gonna always be wrong. He said, "I will never be content until that is until that is fixed," you know. And so it's like, hmm. Well, guess you're gonna always be, you know, be um, non-content because that's always gonna be poor. You're always gonna have the poor. You're always gonna have those who are rich. It's always gonna be the case. The thing is, with social with the communism, they want everything to be equal. They do. So I mean, you know, it ain't that you want them to come up a little bit. You know, what I'm saying you want them to come up, or you want them to come down. And that's what it is. And how you get to it, you know, it's taking, you got to take from one to give to the other in order to make it equal. <laughs> anyway, that's, that's, that's a tangent. All right. So he goes on to say communism. Now, not, so now keep in mind, he's replace this with social justice and see what it, see how, see how it reads. Communism should challenge us to be more concerned about social justice. See, it's about social justice. However, much is wrong with communism. Now, keep in mind, when Martin Luther King says social justice, he's speaking about how it's actually defined. He's not talking about social justice like blacks ain't getting loans, like Eric Mason was talking about. And he's not talking about the fact that you walk into a store and you're not getting acknowledged because you walk into a store and there's a white owner, whatever the case may be. Or that you, got, that you put in for a job and you got denied because it was a white-owned establishment. Now, he's talking about actual social justice issue. He's talking about social justice as it's defined. So it says communism should challenge us to be more concerned about social justice. This is why communism came about because of this idea of social justice. All right. This, this, the, the, the definition of being that everybody should have the equal distribution of wealth. You know, the rich get richer, the poor gets poor. A, B, and C. No, the rich need to come off some of that money and, and the poor need to come up with some money. You know what I'm saying? This is social justice as it's defined. Paraphrase, but as it's defined. However, much is wrong with communism. We must admit that there that it rose as a protest against the hardships of the underprivileged. So communism arose as a protest against the hardships of the underprivileged. Isn't that sound like what some people are arguing today? Saying that blacks are underprivileged? Right? We don't have privilege. We got white privilege. And those minority class are underprivileged. Sounds familiar, right? But well, that's why communism arose. That's why it came in the first place. All right. So keep in mind, he's not talking. He doesn't. He doesn't agree with the, the the means, but he does agree with the ends. And he says this should challenge Christians. Right. We must admit that it rose as a protest against the hardships of the underprivileged. The Communist Manifesto, which I am currently reading right now, and it's very interesting what Karl Marx writes in this um this book. Very interesting. So the Communist Manifesto, which was published in 1847 by Marx and Engels, emphasizes throughout how the middle class has exploited the lower class. Communism in society as a classless society, along with this, goes a strong attempt to eliminate racial prejudice. So he sees good in this. Communism in a society, in a classless society, because that's what the ends of it. In communism, there's no middle class or lower class. Everybody's the same. You know, so that's why I say equal distribution of wealth. You see, Martin Luther King is arguing for this. 
There's, there's, it's a classless society. And he says it's good in this. Why? Because it eliminates racial prejudice. Because everybody, everybody earns on the same levels. That same thing with Mark. That same thing with Eric Mason said. You know, I'm not, I'm not arguing for equal distribution of wealth, but that everybody has the equal opportunity to earn on the same levels. Equal distribution of wealth. There you have it, folks. I mean, that's, that's it. Communism in society is a classless society. In a, is a classless society. Along with this goes a strong attempt to eliminate racial prejudice. Communism seeks to transcend the superficial, uh, superficialities of race and color. Yeah, somebody said in the audience. And you are able to join the Communist Party, whatever the color of your skin or the quality of your blood, the quality of blood in your veins. Yeah, right on. So with that, he has now, in a failed swoop, have already won his audience to think of communism and actually a good thing. If I could come to a close and, um, and finish this up this next week, finish this up this week. <laughs> and so, yeah, he's already, he's already encouraging the communism in its principle, as far as the ends, is actually a good thing. Just not the way that people are wanting to get to it. That's it. But the fact that if we have a communist society, you know, if we have a, of a society that's built on communism, then there's no racial prejudice. We're all, we're all equal. We all earn the same. All right? And he says, no one can deny that we need to be concerned about social justice. So no one can deny that we need to be concerned about social justice. Karl Marx arouses our conscience at this point. So he then talks about how Karl Marx was born. He was born a Jew. His parents were Christian, and all these things. He's, he's like he read. He may have read things in his Bible that kind of gave him examples of how we all should have equal this and equal that. You know, that's what gave him the idea. Um, go on. And then he goes on he, in the last sentence of this. He says, "And so a passionate concern for social justice must be be a concern of the Christian religion." So this is what people believe in the woke in the woke arena. They they say this is this should be a concern of ours. Hey, this is you know this should be a concern of ours. All right, and the social justice is not talking about. And keep in mind, y'all, this isn't just talking about police br- police brutality. I want, you, I want you to think about this for a moment. Everything we read here is not talking about police killing black people. It's not. It's not talking about that kind of injustice. Martin Luther King is talking about people who earn differently. As we read, as we continue on, and we'll, finish, we'll probably finish this up next week. As, he, as we read on, we'll see that he's more concerned because there are houses on the other side of town that aren't built up as well as the ones on, the other, on one side of town that actually has nicer housing. You know, it's about that. He's not, not one time in here does he mention the fact of police, uh, police um, unjustly beating black people or killing them. He's not, not one time he mentions that in the sermon. He's mostly talking about the way they live and the fact that Christians aren't concerned with the fact that there are poor African-Americans. You know, those who don't, who, can't, who don't have the same jobs, they're not making the same amount of money as these people over here. He's gonna, that's the argument he's making in the sermon here. So he's talking about social justice in that sense, guys. And so, I mean, that's what it is. You know, so I hope this has been helpful. Um, like I said, I'm gonna cut off from here. Um, I remember where I'm at. This it's more in this in in this sermon, and um and I do wanna I do wanna continue in this sermon here. Just bring out some points in it. Uh, let me know in the comments what you think um, about this so far. What uh, what your thoughts were? I'm interested in hearing it. Um, even if you disagree, 
You may not agree with anything that I said tonight. You may think I'm just blowing smoke and all that kind of good stuff. That's all good. Leave it in the comments. Let me know. We'll talk about it. We'll chop it up. Whatever. We can do it. My um, number's in the description. You can email me as well. All that kind of good stuff. All right? But um, we're going to finish this up next week. It's already late. I've gone past my time. But remember, this world is full of errors. But the only thing that the doctor prescribes is truth. Now, for my patrons... I will have it set up for a post show afterwards in case you want to get on. Um, if not, I'll catch you all next week, if not this Saturday, for the subscriber hangout. Sounds good? Cool. Grace and peace. Prescribe truth, we giving you what the doctor ordered. Jamal Bandy, apologist, the Lord servant. We undeserving, but Christ changed our mind frame. In a world full of errors, the only thing the doctor prescribes is truth.